KSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. The show about housing, land, policy, and politics. Today on the program, we have on a blue ribbon panel to talk about the CASA Compact. A regional agreement about how to change housing on a number of fronts here in the Bay Area. We have on Eason NDI and Jordan Grimes both returning to the show. We'll hear all they have to say. Starting right about now. So, welcome, Mason. Hey, how are you? Yeah, welcome. Sorry, back. Yeah, thanks for being back. Uh, and welcome uh, back, uh, Jordan. Hey, Mark. Good to be here. Thanks. Yeah. Casa, casa, casa. Uh, a lot of people took my casa it's for months now, and I don't think it's it's going to stop anytime soon. Uh, for people who don't know, um, what is what is casa? Asen, you're you're here largely to you know give give as much of a factual rundown as many different things. It's it's, it's complicated. So, uh, what is casa? Yeah, so CASA, um, which has a subtitle of being the um, Committee to House the Bay Area, CASA actually doesn't stand for anything, it just means house in Spanish, obviously, um, is basically a blue ribbon commission um, that was convened by uh, the Metropolitan Transportation uh, Commission, MTC. Um, to bring together people from different parts of the housing uh, debate, um, you know, uh, landlords, developers, um, uh, tenant advocates, um, equity groups, uh, employers, um, as well as, you know, variety of different other stakeholders uh, to come together to try and tackle kind of the big, big solutions um, and challenges around the housing crisis in the Bay Area. So does blue ribbon just mean VIPs are bought in, or I don't know what that really technically means. <laughs> blue ribbon, I actually don't know what the technical term is for a blue ribbon commission, but generally it's just like some entity, um, you know, usually governmental entity, brings together a bunch of people who are experts in their field and come up with solutions and recommendations, but they don't actually have any power uh, themselves. Sure, like they're not an actual governmental body. And let's just kind of go into like what what our personal involvement was at any point. So you you actually were at you know at some of the earlier uh, talks here for yeah, yeah I was involved with a lot of the um, um, in the meetings um, technical committee and um, the general just a, the general committee meetings as well. And when did this like how far back did this start? About a year and a half ago. Okay. And Jordan, like what what, what is your what's your history of your involvement with Casa? Yeah, so I maybe got involved I don't know, 6 months ago uh, when Casa really started coming out uh, in public stories. The first time I think I read a story about Casa was was maybe uh, summer of this year and for me, as a as a housing advocate, as a tenant advocate uh, on the peninsula, it was exciting because we've had uh, San Mateo County, especially, has had extraordinary challenges with building housing and also with gang uh, with gang tenant protections approved. Um, yeah. we've we've lost some some pretty big fights here. So uh, regional protections were were really something that I was interested in, and uh, yeah, so that's. Yeah, maybe six months ago is when I got involved. And I feel like this is something that's been in air for a very long time, or kind of like a pe- if people are thoughtful, because you get a lot of, I think the worst parts of the housing discourse is when equity people get upset at building housing people. It's like, 
boy, this is this is a really terrible fight. And or who, the reverse, yeah, yeah. as well. Well, yes. I, I, mean, I, mean, I, I mean fighting with each other. <laughs> yeah, they yeah, both, yeah. It, it's tribal and petty on both sides. And, and please, uh, please don't get me wrong, there's asymmetry there. There's yeah. plenty of blame to go around. And but it's it, definitely it, the discourse TM, right? Like yeah. there's a, <laughs> there's a very specific... <laughs> capital T, capital D, <laughs> the discourse. Of course, TM, yeah. And, and, who, and who benefits every time? It's always the kind of status quo landlord Lords, petty homeowner, NIMBY tyrants, all these people are very happy to see the people who want different kinds of change to fight with each other mm-hmm. and everything stay the same. And CASA is in a big thing. What if we have tenant protections and production? Mm-hmm. And we can and, and preservation, which is the third pillar yeah. of um, of the approach, uh, the, the three, three P's. P's. Yeah. So, what would you what would you defer, like define the difference between protecting tenants and preserving communities? Like, um, so they're related, but not exactly the same. Um, so the idea behind preservation is to think about the housing stock. Right. So you're trying as much as possible to preserve the affordability of the housing stock that already exists. With protection, you're trying to think about the people. You're protecting mm. tenants from unfair evictions, uh, from uh, from uh, excessive rent increases, or from um, and giving them assistance and legal assistance when they have to face uh, evictions. Yeah, so I, 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 is this stuff like just making sure that we don't lose styles of housing? For example, things that are either have certain protections, such as you know uh, rent controlled stock, mm-hmm. no no net loss of, of, of units and things, but also yeah. like you wouldn't want to lose stuff like SROs being replaced with yeah, you know, exactly. luxury. So yeah. it's it's the affordability by policy and affordability by design. So affordability by policy, we're talking about um, rent controlled housing, deed restricted housing. Um, and project-based Section 8 housing. Um, All of those often have expiring uh, uh, deadlines, either because of vacancy control, uh, because of um, the need to re-up their their LIHTC investments, or uh, because their local Section 8 program decides that this is not the best property to keep reinvesting in. And then the other one is affordability by design, which is the SRO units, the uh, mobile home community, um, as well as like sort of your classic garden style um, uh, crap box housing that was built in the 60s that's still around and is usually the cheapest housing available. Mm. So, uh, okay, so based upon these three Ps, uh, there are nine different uh, nine different. Uh, Pillars, temple. I, I don't know. There's, there's nine things. I like, I like, I like pillars, pillars, or temples, or <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure. I've seen uh, nine pillars uh, next to each other in real life. Maybe yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're, they're written in, in, uh, in lightning uh, down on tablets from Mount Sinai, and uh, yeah, and they, and they try to, uh, they try to deal with you know each part of this in certain ways. So uh, should we run down what the nine things are and kind of just briefly uh, do a table of contents? Of what we're, we're we got here. Uh, sure. Yeah. I've in front of me, number one, just cause eviction policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we start with tenant protections. Just cause, this is uh, something that many cities already have, mm-hmm. something other cities uh, don't. And would very much like to have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That'd be very great. Um, and um, just landlords can't kick you out without a reason. 
Yeah, that's it. They just have to say yes. why. Like, that's literally the only thing that this basically says. They just have to give a just reason why they have to kick you. They're kicking you out. And then there, there are two types of reason. Um, uh, there are two types of reasons why. Uh, there's a, um, a tenant-caused one and a landlord-caused, right? So a tenant-caused is non-payment of rent, nuisance, uh, non-maintenance of property, a bunch of things that you generally you would say, you know, that's a reasonable reason why yeah. a landlord would want to kick out a tenant. And then the other one, their landlord cause, which is like the owner wants to move back into their unit. They decide that actually they want to take the unit off the market. Actually, they want to, you know, do something. They want to reinvest. Exactly. um, Into the property. And those are legitimate. Housing is primarily an investment. (laughs) Because, of course. But like those are legitimate reasons. The reason why landlords don't want to do just cause uh, protection is because the primary reason why they want to evict someone is not because that person's not paying the allowed rent. It's because they think there's another tenant that's waiting in the wings who will pay them way, way, way more than that current tenant. And the I want to make more money is not a legitimate just cause. And in most cases, they're correct, too. Yeah. Um, you know, we have an extreme housing shortage in the Bay Area. And, and in most cases, you know, you do have people waiting in the wings who are willing to pay more money. F- filtering is real. And it happens when older tenants are priced out by newer tenants. And it's a zero-sum game. And yes. yeah, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's reverse filtering in that case. But it's really it's starving entire communities of, yes, of the people absolutely. who live there, uh, and this sounds like oh, just cause. Of course, it's obvious it's slam dunk. But I mean, just recently, this is a year and a half ago, Sacramento took a vote on it, and like no one really supported the legislation to make just cause at the state level. So mm-hmm. it's not an easy pull. So to put this on this is not a trivial thing to add. Yeah, not at all. I think it's very, very important. But it it's very important to think about it as working in conjunction with the second compact item. Oh, certainly. And and uh, yeah, so you say just cause. What if you don't pay enough in rent? You know, it's like you can say if you don't pay your rent, you can be evicted okay, your landlord, next month, your rent is a million dollars a month, you know? Exactly, yeah. and then you have a cause <laughs> the yeah. next month, right? Like, and yeah. so, like, the way you prevent that is because in the compact item second is that you create some kind of rent cap so that the, your landlord can't, therefore, just say, okay, uh, I need a reason. Here's the reason, 50% more than what you are already paying, right? Um, yeah. So it creates, like, a, a general cap, an emergency cap for a yearly increase in rent. Uh, there's still some negotiations as to what that cap is going to be. The The current version of the compact has it at 5% plus whatever that year's uh, consumer price index increase is going to be. So depending on the year, it could be anywhere from like 5 to 9% Um allowable rent increase and then it allows for a uh, banking of multiple years but a yearly cap of 12.5 percent maximum rent increase are people trying to negotiate the banking part because that thing is always kind of a bit weird i mean i think i think because and this is when we when we go through the list i think we'll talk about the how exactly all of this is going to be translated into legislation but i think what's important to like understand is that any number that's in the compact is definitely subject to whatever happens in the legislature. And you, you might hear this referred to more as rent gouging as opposed to rent control because I think when people... It isn't, it is not rent control. I yeah, mean, I no. think that's like, it's, that's very, it's very important to like make a <laughs> distinction here. Yeah, I mean, that's, the, it becomes kind of, I mean, of course, that's that's the thing that makes landlords, you know, take out their pitchforks when they hear the words rent control. I mean, rent gouging 
if it is about stabilization of prices, but it is something that's not closely tied to CPI, there's mm-hmm. a certain amount of buffer room, uh, which you know it's it it it'll, it certainly allows just cause to be effective. Mm-hmm. Yes, at the that's a very floor of what it is able to provide. Well, yeah. and I mean, I think that uh, rent caps really, um, you know, the anti-gouging uh, kind of measure is really just literally the least that we can do at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, right. preventing preventing these massive, massive increases uh, from going forward all over the Bay Area is, is really, and I mean, I think this was sort of expressed by by equity groups, um, and, and it's something that I that I certainly believe, is that uh, this this quite literally is the least that we can do for tenants. Um, yeah, ensure, yeah. ensure they don't in- receive these just absolutely incredibly massive mm-hmm. uh rent increases that that will likely lead to their displacement yeah Yeah. and i think it's good not to say like oh yeah this isn't rent control i hate rent control it's like you can still say rent control is reasonable and good and say rent gouging is still important and good yeah i mean and it's going to be layered that's the thing like it doesn't replace any local rent control ordinance like it's not preemptive yeah, yeah it's not preemptive at all like so berkeley and san francisco and san jose and cities that already have rent control are generally not going to be impacted by this it's just going to add a layer of protection for places that don't have any protections. Obviously, we'll still be fighting about what the percentages are going to be. But for what's happened on the peninsula, what's happened in the East Bay, where people will get a 40%, 50% rent increase the moment their apartment complex gets sold, that provides some layer of protection. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're an SF, you could say, ho-hum, I don't care about one and two. This gives nothing to me. But speaking as someone who is uh, in the non-San Jose part of Santa Clara County, and you, as in Santa in San Mateo, Mateo County, yeah, yeah. I mean, outside of East Palo Alto, is anywhere else have good protections? Is any no. of these things yeah. um, in in San Mateo County? Oh God, no. Yeah, um, e- EPA is the only one. EPA is the only. So EPA right now is the only city in San Mateo County that has rent control. Uh, and San Mateo tried in 2016. Burlingame tried in 2016. Pacifica tried in 2016. Um, all of those measures were uh, were defeated handily. Yeah. Um, Mountain View made it happen. In Mountain the, View made Mountain it, View and Richmond. Yeah, yeah going back to Santa Clara County, yeah. but yeah, yeah. Um, but they're but they're really sort of sort of anomalies in uh, in that process. Um, and and even things as what I would consider to be non controversial as but have apparently been very controversial as uh you know things like relocation payments. Yeah. Um there's been some some really weird debates about relocation payments. I remember when the President Hotel thing came up in Palo Alto, there was a majority on that council that tried to means test the relocation benefits yes. for essentially what are like small one bedroom studio units in downtown Palo Alto. Yes. I was like what's the point? What's the point of doing this, right? Like, yeah. what what human cruelty is in your heart that you need to like make Means sure test a relocation <laughs> ordinance? Well, it's, it's a point too of just saying like, you know, tenants have basic rights, except like, you know, is, is it supposed to be some sort of amelioration at the low end for some weird thing, or should it be the fact we have a lot of tenants and they all have rights? And I think if you say that tenants should have basic rights of stability and relocation that should obviously be universal and not something you means test to say if you make below you know area meaning income that's the only people who get it which is i think absolutely absurd especially mm-hmm. because you can make it well above any it money this no. is the other thing that i like i constantly rant about is that if if you generally make 150 percent of the area median income you don't need any of this 
right? You don't need, you don't usually need just cause protections. You don't really need that much, uh, that many um, uh, uh, rent control protections. Most of the time, the only reason why uh, means testing becomes a thing is because they want to create um, process and administrative barriers to actually utilizing mm. the programs, yeah. right? Because if you qualify for it, you have to qualify for it, essentially. And just, just the fact that someone has to qualify for something makes it a lot harder for anyone to access it. It's an extra step people. and an extra barrier to mm-hmm. actually being able to utilize that service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking, like, if the means testing, is that something that's going to make landlords like, oh, yeah, I'm going to fight this. But if it's mean tested, I don't care. They're going to fight everything. Knowing yeah. The- yes. Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. Like, yeah. it's not like, oh, my God, yeah, what I really care about is the fact that some money would go to some higher income tenants. They don't yeah. care about that. Yeah. They know what the point is. Yeah. <laughs> and it's been interesting watching uh, the various relocation assistance ordinances that have popped up in peninsula cities because I I do think that the means testing that has been... So San Mateo proposed uh, a relocation assistance ordinance in September. Redwood City passed a fairly weak uh, relocation assistance ordinance back in, I want to say, May, June of last year. Um, Menlo Park is considering one as we speak. Um, but all of those uh, have means testing. Um, well, where are they set at? Uh, so Menlo Parks is set at 150% mm. uh, of AMI. I don't remember on San Mateo and Redwood City. Mm-hmm. But my understanding is that the uh, is that the 150% was put in there as a, you know, essentially as a signal to landlords to say, you know, this isn't... Um, you know, we're we're gonna go with 150. percent We're we're not going to go with something lower, mm-hmm. um, as as a thing that would make it more palatable to them. Sure. And the reality is, there's nothing that makes these things more palatable to landlords. <laughs> they're yeah, just there just isn't. It, they are not. I mean, it reminds I, me of like Obamacare yeah. or something. It's like we're gonna have like you know we're gonna water it down to make sure we have a compromise. It's like no, they're still going to fight it no <laughs> yes. matter what. You know? We've we've seen this repeatedly where yeah. cities and housing commissions and. Uh, legislative bodies have tried to appease uh, realtor groups and landlord groups, groups like the CAA. Um, Yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, watering these ordinances down to a point almost where they're not that helpful Mm -hmm. um, in an an attempt to uh, muster some sort of, yeah, bipartisan support for them. Mm -hmm. And it fails every time. And and seeing something where it actually kind of is working. Like I was seeing the recent evictions of the Rockford Departments in Mountain View, and they have additional relocation programs. So they have additional months and they get payments. And I realized, boy, this is something, but this is compared to the equity that a homeowner would get. It is orders of magnitude less. It doesn't come close to rebalancing the inequities mm-hmm. of no. the landed and the landless. Not and even close. It's not as if like the relocation benefits are some kind of um, uh, real panacea either, right? Like, cause, I mean, it's great. I mean, I think we should be it's better advocating. better than nothing. Yeah, we should yes. be advocating to make sure that these folks have like both the, uh, some money and then some relocation assistance as well. But, but if you actually term, do the math on yeah. like how long any of this relocation assistance really lasts and whether or not there are comparable units in those cities, like this isn't, you know, I, unfortunately, this isn't Oakland. This isn't, you know, San Francisco. And this is, and in most cases, it's not San Jose. In San Jose, you could make the argument that like there's enough supply around that people could find comparable apartments in the city. But in Mountain View, 
in you're constrained on all sides absolutely like they're not going to go to mount certain other apartment in mountain view they're going to be out of uh, of that city entirely yeah Yeah. i mean it's an it's another uh, essentially relocation assistance is is another form of tenant protection that to me is an example of the least that we can do Mm -hmm. um you know really being a very low set bar Mm -hmm. and we still haven't been able to do that um even even with the bar set that low we haven't been able to yeah. to clear it yeah I'm, I'm looking at the, the people on rock street i say like look at this program it helps them but do i expect any of them in this program to be able to be in their community in three years like of course not you know you it, it is a transitionary measure which mm-hmm. helps but it's not it doesn't it does not rebalance what 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 we need uh the inequities here but uh so we actually you know that was coming talking about different protections in this going to number three uh this has to do with i guess eviction protection which is access to legal counsel yeah, accessibility um, yeah. council and rental assistance. Yeah. So, um, rental assistance, in what sense? So, ninety-five percent of all evictions uh, are for non-payment of rent, yeah. right? Um, and uh, the reason why you can't pay your rent is usually you don't usually you don't have enough money. But in some cases, it really is like an emergency situation, right? Um, uh, somebody lost their job. Um, there was some uh, huge medical expense. Some other thing happened to where you were unable to pay your rent for that month or for a couple of months, but you'll get back on your feet. This would provide a, a one-time uh, um, assistance to be able to cover uh, um, uh, rent, uh, back rent, for at least, I think, one to two months. And then there's some limits on the income levels. There's some limits on the amount of money that can be um, aided. But the idea is that this would be uh, emergency rental assistance for people who are going through a crisis. Um, the second part of it is that it would create a, a tenant right to legal counsel throughout the Bay Area, all nine counties. Um, It is not means-tested, but the agencies that are most likely going to be doing the work are means-testing agencies, Um, you know, Bay Area Legal Counsel, that sort of thing. This would be held more or less the same way that the new thing is being run in SF? Um, Roughly. Is is the idea? That's one of the models anyway. Sure. I think most likely there's going to be a mix between the SF version and um, the, the tenant clinics and... And uh, uh, and agencies in the South Bay and the East Bay, uh, where it's more um, uh, tenant led. So the 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 cities or the counties will pay, uh, but the tenants will have to go th- to those agencies in order to get assistance. They can't just um, get one when they get to the courthouse. It's not going to be a Gideon. It's not going to be Gideon level tenant yeah. representation. Yeah. And I mean, as far as, I mean, the, the idea here being that if you are a tenant who doesn't know what's even happening, you're at the mercy of a legally protected landlord who is very likely to, you know, find some sort of way to kind of take advantage of you in the situation. Mm-hmm. And you're probably just going to maybe not even show up, maybe not contest it. Yeah. Right. So what they found is that um, having a lawyer increases the likelihood that an eviction will be resolved or that a tenant will be able to stay or remain in place by 80%. Uh, the tenant right to legal counsel in New York City has shown to pay for itself um, mm. because uh, in a way that it prevents um, uh, evictions uh, and homelessness, it's, like, it's one of the most effective ways to help prevent displacement and, and evictions. Yeah. I mean, to, to me, absolutely the, um, the access to legal counsel is, is one of the best parts of the compact. Uh, we, I mean, that that and along with just cause, I mean, we know, uh, as Asen said, the best way to prevent uh, 
to prevent displacement, to prevent homelessness, is to ensure that people don't get kicked out of their homes. Mm -hmm. um, and that's exactly what access to legal counsel and just cause eviction essentially are for, um, preventing then, that kind of... And I think it's important to say that this is a three-legged stool, right? Yes. Because in a lot of ways, each one of this plugs a valve that landlords try to use to kick out tenants. So you tell them that you have to give a reason to kick out your tenant, and they'll say, oh, sure, I'll increase the rent by 50%. Then you tell them, okay, actually, you can't do that. You only have you can only increase the rent by a reasonable amount. Then they say, oh, fine, actually, that tenant totally leaves their trash outside, or they've violated some very tiny minor rule about, you know, I don't know, letting uh, their mom stay over for a couple of days. And then you get a lawyer to come in and say, hey, this is not this is not a just cause in order to be able to kick out your tenant. So it creates a sort of a firewall against like uh, injustice in the rental market and rebalances the power relationship between tenants and landlords. Yeah. I mean, you cannot really understate just how intimidating getting a letter from your landlord, um, you know, alleging uh, violation of your lease, um, alleging uh all these different things can possibly be and to have someone with a legal background in your corner it's not it's not just i mean this is a big part of it um having legal representation is a big part of it but having the uh peace of mind to know that someone who is trained in this um and who is well equipped to fight on your behalf um is a big potential impact to addressing like the mental health factors of mm -hmm. the stress that's caused by Absolutely. by receiving something like that. Absolutely. And then you said multiple times, the least we can do, it's worth saying, it's a wild west out there of unregulated landlords doing yes. whatever the hell they want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is just like it's like we take it for granted because oh yeah, if you just let anything happen, this is what happens. And it's not good to have completely unregulated landlords out yes. there doing because they are they're not your friend. Mm -hmm. Well and when we talk about deregulation of the housing industry um this is something that we have to think about really really carefully mm -hmm. um is there you know regulation regulation isn't in itself in and of itself good or bad mm -hmm. um it just is and there are good regulations and there are bad regulations and while regulation has in in certain ways been used to suppress the housing stock um in other ways lack of reg uh legislation and lack of regulation have essentially been used to allow landlords to run roughshod over their tenants for, for decades. Yeah, I mean, if I, if I could let the landlords run roughshod, I'd say, okay, they're able to build dingbats wherever they want, you know? Just find anything and build a dingbat. But that's not the regulation they're able to break. You know, but if they want to screw over tenants, they can do whatever they want. Uh, so those are the three... Uh, those are the three, uh, you know, renter protections in this uh, compact. Number four, uh, this is where we start getting to pre uh, production. Uh, mm -hmm. Remove regulatory barriers to ADUs, accessory, accessory dwelling units, a.k.a. granny units. Granny units, or as Liam <laughs> Dillon from the LA Times uh, likes to say, the casitas. Yes, casitas. Um, those are the backyard units. Uh, there's some detail work here that I'm just going to go ahead and gloss over. But basically, a lot of cities make it very difficult uh, to build accessory dwelling units or to convert garages into uh, joint, uh, sorry, junior 
your junior ADUs. Um, this would essentially legalize ADUs um, statewide uh, by creating uh, basic standards for local uh, ordinances for ADUs. It's essentially, I mean, it's the least controversial uh, item in it's, it's the, a, it's uh, the in biggest the fact. Yeah. It's the biggest win-win, and the state has already, in previous years, done streamlining, and they're mm-hmm. kind of saying we need to do more streamlining. And there's a, a current, there's there was a bill last year. Um, it was I don't remember the a, the assembly bill number, but the um, I think it was SB twenty eight. I think uh, that was an ADU legislation bill by uh, Senator Wykowski. Uh It didn't go through. Oh, SB eight thirty one. It didn't go through. But there's a new one. Uh, it's AB sixty eight mm. um, by Phil Phil Ting, Ting. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's got basically the same um, the, the same compact items. Okay, so on number five, minimum zoning near transit. That shouldn't be controversial at all. <laughs> Not <is> now. at <laughs> all. We, um, I mean, I think like if you've if you've heard of SB eight two seven, if you've heard of uh, uh, SB eight two seven electric bugaloo, uh, SB fifty, uh, the more homes act. <laughs> the more homes. The act, more homes act. The more homes act. Uh, uh, then you probably know what this one is about. I think. For the for our own we don't want to get mental health here. <laughs> we yes. should probably just say that like Leave. hey, <laughs> not touch this. <laughs> so moving on, moving right along. Number six, good government reforms to housing approval process. We all love good government, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I actually I love the the descriptions of each one of these menu items. They're great. Because like if you actually read the proposals, it's always like way more than like what it's actually <laughs> saying is. So what what is the difference between good government and not good government? So basically, it's um you know actually in a weird way like each one of these you could like name it after a city in the Bay Area. Yes, <laughs> yes. Oh, that's funny. So like this is know. the Powell Alto compact. Yeah, compact yeah, exactly. number. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, Compact Element 6 is the Berkeley item. Uh, Berkeley has three different housing subcommittees before a housing project actually gets to the the full city council, before it gets approved, right? It's got to go through design review. It's got to go through the zoning approval board, and then it has to go through the planning commission. This would essentially create a limit on the number of meetings a basic project under 20 units that is generally follows the existing zoning in a in a location yeah. um, would have to go through and they also create some general limits on the kind of things that could be expected of a a normal small project to go through in order to be able to be approved um, it ha- it's been one of the less controversial ones the question has always been whether or not it would go further than the 20 units. Because uh, I think below 20 units, a lot of people are like, yeah, sure, whatever, who cares? <laughs> but uh, when it go more than 20 units, a lot of times people get a little more antsy about the fact that this could, you, you'd have essentially minister, ministerial approval for, for, small pro- for large projects. So, so for yeah. small projects, people are trying to get away from the problem where people have to go through you know, 18 meetings for a four-story, uh, four-unit apartment building. Would the main meeting... Because my favorite part historically with Paul City Council has been Karen Holman uh, redesigning buildings on the fly and just complaining <laughs> about improper massing. Is that still going to well, be? Well, actually, thing? they're still going to be design review. Okay, uh, this is one. So of there's the no parts. limits to. Doesn't what, help you there. Mark. No, no, home I'm not the saying, I don't think that there's. It's not. You can't have like ten design review meetings, but there's sure. still going to be design review for the buildings because I think what we are also trying to prevent. Well, it's always funny is there the, is the um, additions. 
uh, ha- uh sorry i'm doing uh i'm doing quotation marks with my hands let uh, it be noted the, the additions to uh kind of the mega mansions on the peninsula um and out in the burbs where people are like i'm just i just want to you know i'm just a regular old person who's just trying to add on to my house and then they build some monstrosity or whatever a mega basement <laughs> exactly a mcmansion <laughs> a mcmansion so i think there's still going to be design review but i think it's going to at least help like people who want to build like second units and stuff uh, yeah. Number seven, expedited approvals and financial incentives for select housing. Okay, so this one is the one that's a, um, a lot longer uh, to explain. Um, so it it takes after a lot of the uh, uh, parameters of SB 35 from last year. Uh, from is it last year? year 2017. 2017. Feels like I must be it six or seven like years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, so basically, it would create a um, streamlined automate uh, uh, ministerial approval process for projects that meet uh, certain uh, guidelines. So first, if it uh, fits within existing zoning. Um, and that it um, allows for basic labor standards, um, skilled and trained workforce. Um, after that, uh, it would um, incentivize a certain kind of uh, development. So obviously, uh, more than 20 units, uh, less than 500 units. I think we're thinking more mid-rise complexes here. Um, it would allow for a menu of incentives in order to make those projects, quote unquote, pencil out. Yeah. Um, so one of them is it would potentially get an automatic uh, density bonus. It could uh, potentially get a fee cap on the on a per unit basis. It could potentially get a tax abatement. It could potentially um, get a. Um, uh, a limit on the number of uh, of public meetings that are required for its approval. And as we've seen with SB thirty five, with like Falco, it does it does magic to make things happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. So basically, there's like a lot of different potential incentives in order to make uh, a to make a project work uh, <laughs> according to the developers. But one of the big um, outstanding issues and things that I think was controversial was the affordability requirement for the project. As under SB 35, if a city hasn't met its uh, affordable housing uh, goals, the project has to ha- be 50% affordable yeah. at 80% of AMI. Uh, and under compact item seven, um, the city, uh, the project would have to be uh, 20% affordable at between 80 and 150% AMI. And let me just repeat that. I'm saying that this is a range, not a limit. Mm. So under the previous, under SB 35, 80% AMI was the limit. Under this, this would be all all moderate income up to 150% AMI. And just to put 150% AMI under... uh, uh, under context, because just we'll all go back to fourth grade math and yes. remember our mean, median, and modes. <laughs> 150% AMI is 50% more than what the average person in an area makes, right? And so, in 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 certain parts of the Bay Area, we're talking for a single person. We're talking about $135,000 a year. For a family of four, we're talking about $180,000, $185,000 a year, which by most people's understanding, is essentially enough money to be able to actually pay 
like generally normal market yes. rate. Silicon rent. Valley has done a great <laughs> job of purging all the lower income people. So now we now we have high area very high income. Area, yes. Yeah, very high. Yeah, and so yes. like when the we, system works. When I looked at this, I found essentially that, um, except for four places in the Bay Area. Um, the 150% AMI would be higher than market rate rent, existing market rate rents. Um, and so we are talking about a potential issue here that I think is definitely going to be something that needs to be worked out eventually. But again, this this compact item seven, I think, is a very large grab bag of different ideas <laughs> um, that got sort of... Um, um, coupled together, coupled together into one one idea. Yeah, it seems so. like one one big thing says, you know, incentive hijinks, and who knows what will work here. So I'm, I mean, it seems like almost too vague to really even know or get excited about. But yeah, you know, what, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think the idea is you'll get more projects with more affordable housing in more places. But yeah. we'll see if it works. Yeah, I mean, I I can already tell you just looking at uh, looking at the proposal details, um, I can. I can count off the top of my head, I don't know, half a dozen projects that would qualify under this. Yeah. Um, you know, just on, on the peninsula alone. I mean, the biggest one that I'm thinking of is the Gateway Project in Millray. Yeah. Uh, that's been dragging on for, I think it's in its seventh year of, it was technically approved last year. It's going through design review hell right now. Um, but it's but it's on like its seventh year, um, and it and it meets all of the criteria here. I mean, when you when, uh, when you look at the qualifying projects, compi- uh, complies with existing zoning, locate an existing urbanized area, um, at least twenty at least twenty percent of onsite housing units to middle income households, gateways at like twenty five percent, and affordable, and yeah. Um, so it's so you know I I can think of. Uh, I mean that's the biggest one that I that I can think of. There's there's several others in San Mateo, um, in Redwood City, and I can think a couple in Burlingame that would be eligible too. I mean there there's really a ton of eligibility here, uh, especially along the peninsula. Yeah, that, well, would, that would help move projects along that have that have been languishing for for years under you know after meeting after meeting after meeting of planning commission and city council and design review and everything else. And when you're stuck in a deadlock, when you're stuck in this hell of nothing moving forever, anywhere goes up. Design <laughs> review limbo. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I don't know what kind of hijinks are going on with, with incentives, know, really, but it, like, it's, it can't hurt. I really wish, like, design review was better because I actually care about design. And it's just like, I, anyway, design review, I feel like, makes project projects worse it does than, than yeah. they were when they first got pr- it pr- we uh, we have a project in san mateo right now that um it's like 66 units and the last planning commission they they approved it this year mm-hmm. largely only because uh it was ha compliant and staff told them if you don't approve this we will get sued again um <laughs> but uh it it was one of those projects that the first time it appeared in front of the planning commission, planning commission said, we don't like the design of this. Uh, it's too blocky. Uh, the massing just, we don't like it. Send it, you know, send it back. And so they actually, the developer actually did. They completely redesigned it in this really nice Spanish revival style. Uh, it's actually a beautiful building. And it came back to planning commission and planning commission goes, you know, it's a beautiful building, but it doesn't really fit in this neighborhood. <laughs> And it's and it's that kind of thing that we Does you know fit. Yeah, yeah exactly the, the fit. I mean I think anyway I'm I'm frustrated because a lot of times like the design review is actually used as a bl- blocking mechanism yes. yes but the truth is like the developers 
because of value engineering, uh, because of like uh, incentives around uh, using the exact same engineering, uh, sorry, architecture firm and using the exact same project plans for yeah. every single one of their projects. It's a cost benefit analysis Absolutely. to them. And it's Gray Star is like one of the worst, yeah. oh. worst. They're like, rational optimizers. Yeah, <laughs> they're completely. A com- yeah, that you do get like and just a general sameness, no attention to like the local environment, any of the histories of, of places. You get people who excel in gaming the process and not in making nice buildings that people love. Exactly. Yes. So. so I think let, let's move through, I think, the, the the last three, eight, nine, and ten, a little bit quicker so we have time to talk about more of the drama. Uh, eight is something we talked about in the past, unlocking public lands, affordable housing. Some of the more, I think, dramatic things have been uh, BART lands, such as parking lots. What if you build a lot of housing near there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there are some process issues and data issues, basically, that a lot of cities don't catalog their, 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 the land that they own in general. Uh, there's the, They don't actually zone that land for housing um, and it would just essentially make it a lot easier for for regional agencies and for developers to find uh, potential uh, places to build housing. One of my favorite things is the idea of repurposing um, um, uh, land under existing public buildings that is not well used. Uh, I think this is the idea of uh, building some affordable housing on top of libraries, mm, uh, yes. which is, uh, I think, maybe my favorite. It's probably my favorite thing in the entire the entire Casa Compact. So. Affordable housing and libraries. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but like the idea of like integration of like public services with affordable housing yeah. is so. It's like it could be a really. Um, could be really great. Some people have talked about like you know, want to make sure that this isn't divesting public lands that you make sure that municipalities. And other, yeah, there's you... some issues around uh, disposition, and I think this is um, this is going to be a, a little bit of a battle. I have a very, very, very strong bias towards uh, long-term ground leasing of public lands as opposed oh, yeah. to dispose, uh, disposition through sales. Um, you never know what you're going to need the land for in 100 yes. years or 50 years. Um, cities I'm are forever. I'm so angry at people in the past for making outright sales instead of leases. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I'm very much of the same mindset. And you, and you've got I mean that's been a big issue in in San Jose just recently is the is the sell off of public land to Google. Exactly. Yeah. As opposed to like you know what's what what is the difference between a sale and a hundred hundred year, year lease? Yeah, you know, yeah. like the city will the still interest, be around a hundred yeah. years from now. It's yes. been around for three hundred. You know, just yes. uh, <laughs> you're, you're betting against your own growth, which a yeah. city should never do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, number nine, funding and financing the Casa Compact. A lot of people call this it's a menu of options instead yeah, of yeah, it's a know, bunch of taxes. Let's yeah. just leave it at that. Well, yes. What's this? Well, I don't see any of these being a full repeal of Prop 13 and a full land value tax. What, what the hell? I, you know, I tried. <laughs> I did my best. There weren't I, enough Georgists I, I, on the yeah, panel. Yeah, and, uh, I, I, I walked in there, had my copies of Progress and Poverty, just yeah. ready to hand out for everyone. Uh, but unfortunately, I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't get them onto the single tax bus. So, you know, we ended up with uh, 14 million different uh, tax options that are most of, most of which are going to have to go go to, uh, to the ballot. Um, and um, yeah, a lot of, the, a lot of this is inner city revenue sharing <laughs> makes people upset. Some stuff is better taxes, worse taxes. Some stuff are sales taxes. I would hate that to be the thing that people agree on, but you know, that's, that usually makes the best politics. So I am pessimistic as far as that goes, but you know, but at least we should say like, it's supposed to raise $1.5 billion a year. We need money. And yes. then one of the uh, 60% of it would go to affordable housing production. Um, and then 20%, uh, sorry. Yeah. 20% of it would go to house, housing preservation. And then another 20% would go to protection programs like the tenant rights, illegal council. Yes. I mean, when it comes, when it comes down to it, when you, when, 
uh, you look at the potential sources of funding here. There's there's definitely a very practical political aspect to it too. Um, much as uh, much as I would enjoy. Uh, and would have enjoyed having, you know, the reanimated corpse of Henry George on the CASA Technical Committee. That just wasn't... Uh, we have the technology. You know. Um, Holograms uh, can do miracles. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, as as much as I would love a uh, would love a repeal of Prop 13, um, I, I do think the gross receipts taxes, head taxes, parcel taxes, mm-hmm. commercial linkage fees, everything listed here. Well, and people mentioned, too, that if you see a... Uh, just the 2020 uh, commercial Prop 13 repeal, you will still see a lot of revenue sharing that's going to be incredibly meaningful based mm-hmm. upon this revenue sharing program. Yeah, in this. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, last and, and uh, I guess uh, not least, uh, how regional housing enterprise. They're going to create an entity. Yeah, it's, it's also known I as- I love entities. It's also known as Agenda 21 um, and <laughs> yes. Jade Helm 15. Um, it is uh, the and plan, and uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, all the. It is the plan. It is one world government. Break it out is, your tinfoil. Uh, yeah, get your get your marigos. <laughs> I, just, I just love so much that Lydia Koo is is authentically printing Agenda Twenty One stuff on her tw- Twitter. It's a wonderful. Lydia Koo is the gift that just keeps on it's, giving. She's, she's great. She's uh, I love that. I just really found out yesterday she blocks her council person, uh, fellow council person Adrian Fine, and his wife on Twitter. It's like I don't. Know it's even legal, but okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, so, what is an entity going to look like? Do we know, or is this going to is this is a lot of gray area here? So, yeah, a lot of gray area. Um, most likely going to be at MTC, but uh, sorry, most likely going to be at MTC, but who knows? Um, so, MTC I, is the closest thing to a regional government we have. ABAG essentially, yeah. yeah. Yes. ABAG it's is a, part of our transit. But system, ABAG, kind of. ABAG and MTC have merged. Yeah, sure. this is an important thing. I mean, they have separate. They still have separate governance, but they have merged their administration. They've and ABAG, yeah. yeah. ABAG was largely eaten by MTC. Essentially, mm-hmm. they've always yeah. been heavily linked in concept, but now they actually are the same yes, org in yeah. practice. Yes. In practice, they are the same org, and so this would be a clearinghouse for data and money. Um, so the I think the data is more important than the money, to yes, be honest with you. Absolutely. Um, because one of the biggest issues is the fact that Foster City and Cupertino and like fill in the blank, like fill in your worst city, yes. San Ramon, you know, can say, oh, I'll just add 10,000 jobs here and uh, I guess they're going to live somewhere. Who the hell cares? Yeah. I'm gonna get that sweet, sweet like uh, sales tax revenue. I'm gonna get that sweet, sweet business tax. I'm gonna get that sweet, sweet property tax. Right. I'm gonna continue kicking the can down the road as <laughs> I've been doing for the last thirty years. Yeah. So this would actually say, hey, this is gonna have this impact. People are gonna have to come from here. This is gonna have this environmental impact. This VMT impact. And then it's also gonna help all of those cities plan better for their own uh, housing growth because obviously they don't have the resources to do so. And in some cases it's true. Like Petaluma, you know, doesn't doesn't have a 10, mm. 15 person planning department. It's got two you know, two people in a in an office somewhere who are like, you know, trying to approve um, like people's window adjustments, right? So poor little Monte Sereno is trying their best. They're just too tiny. Well, know? I mean some cases you do have like crappy places like Monte Sereno. But really you really do actually have and this is something actually I found out from being part of the process uh, especially talking to people from the North Bay uh, which is that you know yes a lot of cities on the peninsula are tiny and rich uh, but there are also a bunch of cities that are legit. There's ten Tiny people in City rich. Hall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. There are like ten people in City Hall, 
you know, and three of them are cops. So it's like, <laughs> and even though, so they even, actually need yeah. help with planning, you yeah. know? So I think it's going to be good for that. Um, on the money side, I think that's still up in the air, but I think the idea is like there will be a, a series of carrots and sticks uh, through this thing in order to be able to um, uh, fairly allocate those uh, the funds that are raised. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yep. So as far as the entity goes, does this explain, like, throughout, they talk about tenant protections, and they don't say all California tenants, they say Bay Area tenants. Uh, and, like, how do like what what is a tenant protection going to be that is throughout the Bay Area but isn't statewide? Well, I mean, so that, that just goes, I think, back to what the compact was originally meant to be, was this series of, uh, you know, regional legislation. I mean, the reality is that most of... Many of the items in the combat could be applied statewide, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, the ADU bill is not going to be a nine county, uh, it's not going to be a nine county bill, yeah. right? Yeah. Whereas the regional housing entity uh, is not going to be statewide, it's going right. to be specifically regional to the nine county Bay Yeah, area. we're not going to raise all this money for the state. I mean, a lot of this stuff, <laughs> no. I, I don't know what really could feasibly be nine county outside of this kind of revenue sharing thing. And yeah, it's, it's, well, you know, SB 50 and, yeah. Yeah, the SB rent 50, caps. Uh, SB fifty, SB fifty actually is going to be a statewide. That's what yes, I'm saying. Yeah, it's a statewide go, yes. bill. But I think the so the rent cap I think could be a nine county thing. I think just cause could be uh could could be nine. I mean, I would prefer it to be statewide. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, I I think it could be limited. My preference to definitely for just cause would be statewide. Absolutely. As well. So how how do you make sure? Like, I mean, this is going to be hey, sign on, be part of this entity. What are they going to do about holdouts? Because I mean, it's well, what is the plan here to make sure that everybody's on board? You know, because well, what do you mean everybody? Like yeah. every say, I mean, like say, if we want all tenants to be protected, you actually need some sort of governing body to make sure that there's tenant protection laws in all regions of the Bay Area. Like, uh, how do you make sure that people aren't covered? Like that, I guess I'm no, just. I mean, they would be right if it's. Uh, are, are you trying to say like regional it, or statewide? I'm, regional. I'm I guess the question is, what is the governing body to make sure that? a city isn't just continue to be a wild west of, oh, this doesn't apply here. Oh, I mean, I think the the California state legislature. I would would assume. Yeah. So would they set up, like, the authority for a regional body to say, you have authority to make... No, they would just say, in these nine counties... This is the law. So it would yes. still go through. It would still go through Sacramento yeah. and yes. not a new process. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Okay. It would still go through Sacramento. It's that, still okay. through the legislative process. Yeah. and it literally just do... becomes state law. That yeah. if you do this, you are, you are doing. If you. My favorite, my favorite thing about reading bills is always the way that they figure out a way to to isolate a place. Yes. You know, they're like uh, uh, the following legislation will only apply to cities that are also conterminous with. Counties. <laughs> I wonder where that is. <laughs> you know, that's very funny. This One of these things is city- not like the other. Yeah, it only that- applies to cities with populations above four million. <laughs> that's very funny. So, anyway. I wonder how many in the entire U.S. How many places are like San Francisco, where a city is a county like that? Oh, there's a bunch. Actually, there- I don't yeah, know if a bunch. Like- there's uh, Indianapolis. St. Louis is uh, working on doing it. Uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, Alexandria, Virginia. There's a whole bunch. Mason just knows everything up his head. He's a database of, of that good, was good facts. that was very impressive. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I just didn't know if like the idea is like oh, we're also going to have like a new Senate of MTC, which is going to make new regional things. It's like, going to be the Senate yeah. in um, Star Wars. If yes, the galactic <laughs> Jar Jar Binks takes over. Yeah, yes. it's going to be great. So is uh, that is that 
Oh yeah, but Lydia Koo is an alchemist. <laughs> yeah, too. That's, that's, that's who she is. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, if if she's Palpatine, who's who's her Jar Jar? Uh, yeah. yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Right? Yeah. Uh, so is it Filseth or Dubois? So yeah, basically, like the other, there are a couple of other things that I think were were not included as compact items, but are included as calls to action. Um, and there have been things that people have definitely um, um, surfaced as being issues that would make the compact more effective over the long term. So first of all is to bring back some version of redevelopment that is the non uh uh, obviously corrupt version of of redevelopment yes. uh, that actually preferably. Where, <laughs> preferably where the money would actually go to housing as opposed to uh, golf courses and and random economic <laughs> development um, uh, projects. Uh, to lower the voting threshold for housing funding measures, right now you need two-thirds because the ghost of Howard Jarvis will continue to haunt us forever, uh, down to 55%. Um, to try to address the fiscalization of land use, um, this is essentially trying to think about um, split role or just reforms to Prop 13 in general. Um, a call to address homelessness, uh, which I think is just... Um, obviously something that was not included as part of the uh, compact elements and I think has been surfaced by a lot of people as if you're going to address the housing crisis in, in the Bay Area and not have a compact item for for homelessness. Yeah, a lot of it's people... It's going to be very, 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 you know, yeah. it's going to be an, an, an obvious oversight. Well, we were both at the same thing down in San Jose mm-hmm. and people are demanding a number 11 yeah. all about, you know, addressing homelessness. Yeah. And I think that's, I, th- I think that would do a lot, yeah. yeah. And then the last one is like a call to action that's near and dear to my heart, which is that, um, you know, it'd be nice if we built all this housing, but also it'd be nice if we had like the workers to actually build it. Yes. Um, and so there needs to be an actual pipeline to make sure that um, that we are bringing more people into the construction industry and then to make the residential construction industry actually an attractive uh, line of work. Uh, um, uh, the commercial side of, of construction pays in some cases twice as much as residential yeah um and so we need to still make sure um that uh we're making sure that the residential side of construction is um is that because the scale of materials and union jobs i'm sorry is that because the scale of material that we scale material yeah wow that's that's insane scale material scale level yeah yeah well i think it's important to you know while we're while we're on the topic of labor i i do think it's important to note that the one uh the one person on the CASA technical committee who who voted who voted a five, which on the gradient scale, well, to talk about the voting just really briefly. So there's everyone voted between one and five, or yeah. So it was between one and five. One being I absolutely love this thing; it's amazing; it's the best thing since sliced bread. And five being no, throw it in the garbage, stomp it out. Um, and what I may be being a little bit too hard on the five. Uh, but the one person who voted a five was Scott Littlehale, uh, of, uh, senior research analyst for labor. And basically what he said labor was- Labor general for the carpenters. Yes. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Labor for the carpenters. Excuse me. Um, the real labor. Yeah. Well, yes. Um, anyway, but, but Scott's point was that we've addressed the need for housing. We've addressed the need to protect tenants, but we haven't addressed the need for, hey, where the hell are we going to get all these people to build all this housing? Mm-hmm. Um, we need to do much more to invest in uh, training in training labor, 
Uh, we need to do much more in investing in wages for the people who are going to be building these buildings. Mm-hmm. And that's one area where, where I do think the cost of compact really failed, yeah. um, that it Absolutely. just completely let down on on that aspect. And going forward, if if we want to make these things happen... Um, you know, that's that's something that we absolutely need to address sooner, much sooner rather than later. Yeah, much sooner rather than later. I agree 100%. So, okay, so as we're wrapping up this part one, which is what is CASA, one thing saying, it's not like this is approved and it's law. This is a visioning document. Is that the right way to say it? Is it a visioning document? Is it a... Yeah, I mean, it's basically like here's a bunch of people came together. They hashed out. Um, you know, their differences. They looked at a bunch of different options. Um, they heard from a bunch of, you know, different in, um, interest groups. And here's what they came up with. Um, there were some compromises, blah, 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 blah. Of course, the truth is, you know, it, it, this is a reflection of who was at the table, right? And it was also a reflection of who had power in the process. However, it's also a document uh, that was produced by a blue ribbon commission, and while it was adopted by the MTC board and the ABAC board, it now will be uh, advocated for by um, by the community and by MTC and by other advocates, and then it goes to the state legislature, who has. They're not. They're, they're not prerogative. They're not bound by. <laughs> yes. Yes. No. You know, there's no. There's no will. binding. Um, yeah. yeah. There's. There's no binding. It's. It's a series of ideas. The way. Uh, the way I've heard it described is as a framework. Mm-hmm. And I think that's. You know. I think that's I the think correct that's way the, to. That's the correct way. Yeah. And I think it's going to look. I think it's. I think the best way to think about it is that this is a package. Yes. Right. This is a legislative package. And I think it's also important that um, one of one of the things I've heard mentioned is that there were. Uh, a number of ideas, like a large number, like something like 45 or 50 ideas that were left on the table mm-hmm. that they didn't go with, that that also could turn into things, that there are there are equity proposals. Mm-hmm. Um, we could dream all day of everything that could have been in here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but, but I like, mean, there were ideas that were, you know, there are ideas that were proposed that it's it's very much possible that they could make it to the legislature this session or next oh, session. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, So, yeah, so this has been part one of CASA. What is CASA? Uh, And we will be back with a second episode. Uh, It may be in your podcast feed already if you're listening on that. So uh, thanks very much for being here today. Oh, yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. We have been listening to A Roundtable with Ace and NDI and Jordan Grimes on the CASA Compact, part one of a part two, two-part series. Uh, We will be back with an episode very soon presentation of KZSU, Stanford.